Today we are in the beautiful city of Moscow, one of my favorite cities in the world. I really like the concentric layout of the city. You know, you feel like you're in the halls or corridors of a former superpower. So anyway, we're not here to promote Moscow. Let's talk about the podcast for today. Today I'm going to provide a different perspective on the on what the case interviewer sees when you are doing your cases and hopefully this perspective will help you understand how to present yourself. One of the best analogies I use to candidates to explain what the case interviewer sees is imagine you have been invited to a presentation or a meeting, which I'm sure all of us have been invited to, and imagine that the interview the person presenting has stood up and they've projected their presentation onto the wall or onto the whiteboard and the entire talk is built off the presentation so you have to be able to observe the presentation right otherwise you don't know what's happening but imagine that for whatever reason you couldn't observe what was on the white wall so the person's referring to things on the on the projection but you can't see what's on the projection that's a little bit actually that's a lot like what the interviewer feels like when a candidate is talking through their cases. So a candidate has all the calculations in front of him or her, and they're doing a lot of work and structuring the analysis, you know, deciding what the assumptions are, doing calculations, generating options, and so on. But unless you write very neatly, it's very difficult for the interviewer to see upside down what you are doing. And even when you write neatly, because it's upside down, it's very difficult for the interviewer to know what you're doing. So again, imagine this analogy whereby you're sitting in a room, someone's presenting, you can't see what they're presenting. So what do you need to do? Well, you would hope the presenter changed their style of presenting so that you wouldn't have to rely on the content that you couldn't see. And that's what you need to do when you're doing cases. You need to change your style of speaking, what you say and how you say it, to accommodate the fact that the interviewer cannot see what you are writing. If you can keep that analogy in the back of your head when you're doing cases, it will serve you really well. So let's talk through the anatomy of a case and look at some of the key junctures where candidates make mistakes by not communicating very well or communicating without understanding this analogy. So just remember this analogy, right? Just to recap, you're in a presentation, you're watching someone deliver a presentation using a PowerPoint that's projected onto a whiteboard, but you cannot see the PowerPoint. Therefore, you are hoping the presenter adjusts his style, language, and tone to compensate for the fact that you cannot rely on the PowerPoint that's projected onto the wall, right? Let's begin. So. When you initially get a case, you should always ask for some time to look at what you've been provided. I always tell that to candidates. No matter how easy a case looks, you have no idea what they've baked into that case. So take some time and look at the case. Look at the case, read the material, and ask yourself this, okay, is everything about this case clear to me or do I need to ask any clarifying questions, right? And jot down one, two, maybe three or four clarifying questions. And the clarifying questions are not there to help you solve the case, no. They help you there to understand the case. There's a difference, right? So I want you to ask clarifying questions to understand the case. After you understand the case, then we'll talk to you about how to structure the case. Now, once you've received this information and you've taken some time to jot down a few clarifying questions, you should always ask the interviewer, well, I've, uh, I have a few clarifying questions which I need answered to develop my structure. On the other hand, I understand you may want to um, see my initial high-level structure thinking up front. So, you know, which would you prefer, to see the structure or to, to know more about my clarifying questions? 
Now the interviewer may very well tell you he wants to see the structure up front or the clarifying questions, right? But of course, as an interviewer, if I'm sitting there, I would only say yes to the clarifying questions if I knew you were going to ask me something like four to six clarifying questions. If I knew you had a list of 12 to 20 clarifying questions, I would say no way. That's too much information you're asking for. So I would ask for your structure up front. Now if the interviewer would ask for your structure up front, ask for a minute to develop your structure. It doesn't mean you have to think it up off the top of your head. If the interviewer says proceed with your clarifying questions, then all you have to do is proceed with your clarifying questions, right? Once you've asked him your four or six or whatever questions you have to ask him, ask him for a few seconds to gather your thoughts and tell him what you're going to come up with is a key question which will help focus the direction of the study by incorporating all the data he's provided from the clarifying questions and you're going to present that with your structure, right? Now that's BCG, right? If it was McKinsey, it would be different. With McKinsey, yes, you would ask him for your time but even though you would develop a key question and your structure, as we show in other podcasts and as we train our candidates, we show you how to immediately generate hypotheses and that's what McKinsey is interested in, right? So if it is a BCG case, let's talk about that. You'll present your key question, you'll tell him what the key question is you're trying to solve in this case. Then you'll move into your overall structure, you have to present them together. And then what you'll try to do is try to prioritize the branches of analysis in your structure. And remember this, when you talk about a key question, even BCG people may not know what a key question is, so you always have to explain what it is. When you use terminology, again, think of the analogy of the presenter presenting of a projected presentation that you can't see. He's got to explain things to you in more detail because you cannot see it. So explain what a key question is. Explain how you generated your structure. Tell him that, well, I looked at what issues drive answering this question. What are the little buckets of analysis I need to do to answer this question? That's how I arrived at my structure. Don't simply say, well, my structure is. Because for the interviewer, he doesn't know if you've memorized the structure, if you understand the structure, or why you've chosen the structure. But if you explain to him how you generated the structure, you gain respect in their eyes. You gain competence. Again, it's like the presentation. Don't just present the structure because no one can see it on your projection. Explain how you've arrived at it, right? The next thing you have to do, obviously, is prioritize which branches of the of the structure you're going to analyze first or which parts of the structure you're going to begin with first. Again, you need to tell the interviewer this. You need to tell him, look, or her, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take some time to ask a few questions about each of the branches or about the business in general to understand which are the most important branches I want to analyze. Does it make sense to you? Now, in some cases, the interviewer may want to lead and he may say, well, I want you to analyze this branch first. In other cases, the interviewer will say, yes, that makes sense. Go ahead and ask me any clarifying questions you have. When asking your clarifying questions, you must understand the interviewer is judging you on this. So when you're asking questions to determine which part of the structure to use first for your analysis, be succinct. Right? You don't have a lot of time, don't waste. You have to know what you're going to do. You have to know why you're asking these questions. And you have to know how you're going to use the information when you receive it. When people ask me a question, I always ask, okay, I ask myself, should I give them this information or should I find out why they want this information? And sometimes I'll ask a candidate, why do you want this information? If the candidate has a weak reason that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, I'll just say, are you sure that's the right thing to do? Why wouldn't you do this? Or if I give you that information and you did this, wouldn't you be missing something else, right? But the point is you have to prioritize which part of the structure you want to work with. And again, once you've received this information to help you prioritize, tell the interviewer, well, I'm going to work with this part of the structure first for these reasons, but I may circle back to these other areas for analysis later, either because they may be important or because they're important 
in the sequence of the way I'm going to do my analysis, right? Once you then decide you're going to analyze an area, a common mistake candidates make is they just continue with the analysis. I find it surprising, actually, that many candidates, when they come to a new part of the analysis, they never ask general information. So tell me about how this business structures its operations, or tell me about tell me whether there's been any change in profits, or tell me whether the cost structure has changed recently and why. They move through a case without having a dialogue with the interviewer. And you should always be having a dialogue with the interviewer. The interviewer is always hiding some information. And the more chances you get the interviewer to talk, the greater the probability is going to share that information, right? Interviewers are under stress. Remember that. They have a lot of material to go through. They have a lot of people they're interviewing. So they're never just going to talk and have a general conversation with you. Every time you get them to speak, they're either going to test what you're doing. They're going to provide information that's going to help you with the case or they're going to give you very specific feedback by telling you focus on this area or go down this path. But you have to have that communication with the interviewer. Now once you've done your analysis and you've identified the problem, you can only recommend solutions once you've identified the problem. It surprises me how many candidates start throwing out solutions once they've done the analysis but they haven't identified a problem. You can only provide recommendations once you've identified the problem. And recommendations are not, I would do this. Recommendations should always be in a list of options because to fix any problem, there's always more than one path available to management. And what you should do is list a set of options, either in increasing order of importance or decreasing order of importance, and explain how you're going to prioritize those options, right? If you list three options for management to proceed, to proceed on, obviously each of those three options will solve the problem. But you have to then explain how you would assess those options, which one you would recommend and why, and finally you have to talk about recommendations and the implementation challenges you would face. And when you wrap up your case, there are two tactics to wrap up the case. You can either start at the beginning and talk through your analysis, or you can start at the end and say, this is my recommendation and this is how I arrived there. I do find the greatest candidates are able to succinctly explain their logic, but are very good in talking through the implementation and the sort of pros and cons of, of, the, um, of the option they are recommending. This is not meant to be a long podcast. This is meant to introduce an analogy that indicates what it feels like for an interviewer when he is trying to observe what you're doing. I mean, the worst part of this is when people are doing calculations, right? Everything's upside down for the interviewer. He doesn't know what you're doing, especially when candidates say things like 30% times 1.4 million times 20% times 80%. When candidate says 80%, even though I may have understood what the 80% was five minutes ago, five minutes later I've forgotten what it is. And when a candidate simply says 80%, I've actually lost all track. Again, it's like watching a presentation where the equation is up on the wall, but I'm the only one who cannot see it, and I'm totally lost. So this analogy works very, very well. Always imagine what it feels like when you're in a presentation and you can't read the slides in a wall, and somebody's just talking off the slides in a wall, totally ignorant of the fact that either their slides are incomprehensible or the person sitting on the other side of the room cannot understand it, right? In fact, in terms of presentation etiquette, you'd say that's very poor presentation because you didn't understand the needs of the audience. So think about the needs of the interviewer and the kind of situation they're in. They're actually flying blind here and they're relying totally on your verbal guidance, to guide them. And in fact, one of the most famous podcasts we put out is the podcast of the blind navigator. It's one of the most fundamental techniques we teach our candidates. And actually, it's one of the most powerful techniques we teach our candidates to work with case, uh, to work with um, interviewers. And linked to that, obviously, is the idea of the airport syndrome. Two very powerful techniques. I think the third one you want to link here is the idea of the, um, you know, um, 
presentation where you can't read the slides on the wall. So always remember this when you are engaging the interviewer. As always, if you want to ask any questions, please feel free to respond and I will provide feedback.